All right, everybody. Thanks again for tuning into Mental Health Monday, where we aim to provide an open space for dialogues about a number of mental health topics and how folks are being affected on local, state, and national levels. Guests and topics on the show range from psychiatrists, psychologists, school drug and grief counselors, and any other professionals in the field. Testimonials from those affected by mental health issues, such as students, veterans, first responders, and more. And we also hear from folks who are organizing events around the community that promote or bring awareness to mental health issues, with the main goal being normalizing these mental health dialogues. Our guest today is one of our returning guests, Dr. David Martirano, MD from the uh, WBI. He's the Assistant Medical Director and Director of Adult Psychiatric Services at the Wyoming Behavioral Institute in Casper. Um, we've talked about a number of subjects on the show before, and today the topic is going to be addiction. Um, before we dive into that subject matter for today, uh, Dr. Martirano, how are you doing this afternoon? Very well. How are you? Doing great. Uh, once again, as always, thank you for taking the time to chat with us here uh, at Coffee Time and Mental Health Monday uh, to get the word out on the services that you provide at WBI and then just some of the uh, mental health issues that uh, our, our residents are facing in Fremont County and across the state. Um, if you could just give us uh, some background information, as you've done before, about yourself and uh, what you do at WBI. So as you mentioned, I'm the associate medical director here, which means that I'm kind of the medical director some of the time. And then I'm also the director of adult psychiatry. So I, I run our inpatient program. Uh, so I'm the, I'm the clinical supervisor of all of the psychiatric staff on the adult side of the hospital. Now, in terms of uh, addiction and, and mental health, um, before we kind of talk about the services that you provide there for that, uh, what are some of the biggest issues that you see in our state, in our area with addiction? Um, how, how does addiction tie in to one's overall mental health in terms of the process of addiction, uh, recovery? Uh, what, what do you think? Well, it's a great place to start um, because I would say that one of the the biggest challenges is funding. But another one that's an unpopular topic, in my opinion, is criminalization. Mm -hmm. uh, and by unpopular, unpopular, I mean that I don't sit in the same area uh, around criminalization of chronic substance use as other people. Uh, I, I don't really have issues, per se, with recreational drug use in the classic sense, it, it, except for the fact that it rarely stays that way. Mm -hmm. It usually causes problems, um, whether it's DUIs, whether it's poor grades or poor work performance or a million other things. There's very little benign recreational drug use, and that includes alcohol right. and especially smoking. But as far as the criminalization part, what I'm really talking about is when people chronically demonstrate an inability to manage their substance use disorder without an intervention of external authority. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and to be more kind of specific around that, what I mean is we have a huge amount of recidivism in the state to relapse where people readmit. You know, I, I talk about one case at Wyoming Medical Center that cost millions of dollars over the course of 300, I believe, two or 300 admissions all related to chronic relapsing alcohol use in one person. Wow. 
And the thing is that, yeah, if you're drunk at home, you know, I'm fairly libertarian in my political views. I don't necessarily want to impose my will on other people. Right, right. right. But, but when you're chronically asking for help, but then you don't take the help that's offered and you continue to go home and then a day later readmit and cost the state millions of dollars. And we've turned a blind eye to these cases. Uh, you know, the, the statute specifically excludes substance abuse. And I know that, or I don't know, I assume that the legislature, when they wrote that, thought they were saving money. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, we don't want to be treating substance abuse because the state does provide money for involuntary hospitalization for mental illness. But they exclude substance use from that category. And as a result, people don't get mandatory substance use care when they need it. And uh, they end up attempting suicide. They end up injuring themselves. They end up injuring other people. They end up in standoffs with the police. They use a huge number of 911 resources. I would become terribly frustrated during the COVID pandemic with people admitting to the hospital suicidal and drunk for the fourth, fifth, tenth time. And we're sending EMS out. These guys are gowning and gloving and doing all the stuff to make sure they don't get COVID, right? And we're using these vital COVID-preventing resources. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the person leaves WBI or WMC or CWCC days later and goes back to drinking. And then when they get bored of being drunk, you know, and a lot of times it's when people's checks run out, you know, a lot of people are on various types of subsidies and we don't help them. And so it's either, are we just not going to help people? That's one option as a society. I'm not sure it's a good option or a humane option, or are we going to give people help like we do with some mental illnesses, even when the people themselves aren't ready to accept it. How do we uh, how do we combat that then? Is is it prevention? Is it is that the the golden question we don't have an answer to? Or well, I think that the ability to provide mandatory substance use treatment at some point in somebody's care is an essential component. Of this. Okay. So I think that if you can't get better on your own, we should be able to help you get better. Or else it's just going to be this kind of lo- like you said, this lost cause scenario. Like, oh, we, we we've tried as many times as we could. Our, our our hands are clean of it, and that's that's not an option. Right. It's a terrible option. Terrible option. Then, like you said, you you you're not trying to tell people what to do and what they can and can't do with their lives. But well, when it ends up costing the state money and there's already funding issues, like you mentioned. Um, what, what are some of the, the setbacks that uh, you've experienced or that maybe you can talk about uh, where we're not having adequate funding may have had a negative effect? Well, the fact that there's so many of these, the fact that we're backed up at every level from CWCC to WBI to Wyoming Medical Center, all of our beds are full all the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are substance abuse or recidivism. Uh, you know, if I look down the list of census patients at these hospitals, um, and when I walk around and I see day after day the same people readmitting with no progress, uh, you know, a hospital bed at Wyoming Medical Director costs the fees probably around $1,500 a day. Wow. Average. And, you know, we're not talking about five beds even. We're talking about around the state probably 40 or 50 beds a day, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're talking about $75,000 a day, three, $4 million in money, $28 million, you know, it's like it's crazy. And, you know, there are hidden costs 
because sometimes it's, oh, they came in with cardiac issues, or oh, they came in with this. But it's a big part of the problem around the state. And I talked to, you know, um, Governor Gordon about this uh, personally. Um, and it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. And then where are you seeing it uh, affecting most, if, if, you can, if you can answer that, uh, in, in older demographics or younger demographics or just across the board? Well, I think the chronic ones are people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and early 60s. If you have a really bad chronic substance use disorder, you really don't live as long. However, in the meantime, you're going to use up a ton of care. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's the 20-year-old. I mean, I have a 20-year-old-ish person who I discharged today who's had, you know, multiple admissions around substance use issues for years, uh, but they exacerbate that person's psychiatric condition as well. So it's always stuff like that. What are some of the, the long-term effects on people's mental health, uh, the physi- physiological aspects of uh, people who don't get their uh, addictions treated, or they they don't they don't look into it all. What what happens to a person? Uh, you know, you're at higher risk of attempting suicide, completing suicide, injuring a family member, having a car crash, having a heart attack, having a stroke, mm-hmm. um, developing diabetes, uh, having your diabetes worsen, um, having uh, peripheral vascular disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, lung cancer. Um, throat cancer, oral cancer, um, ovarian cancer, stomach cancer, uh, colon cancer. I, you know what I mean? <laughs> what, what does it not do? Right, uh, right. You know, I, I, and, and in terms of then the mental health aspect of it, when you get fired from your job because you're drunk, it has a huge impact on your mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, when mm-hmm. your uh, wife or husband leaves you because you got fired, when your kids don't talk to you because you're a bad parent, um, you know, when the people in your community shun you, um, because you've created public disturbances and you're chronically on the, uh, docket for arrest, um, for public intoxication, uh, all of these things impact it. When you can't get your CDL back and you're a trucker because right. you DUI, you know, I mean, it, it goes down to every single aspect, but you know, there's so, yeah, it's bad. It's just, it's an awful problem. And, you know, all of the stuff about legalizing and decriminalizing, it's like, I don't want you to go to jail for methamphetamine possession. Mm-hmm. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. But I do want you to have significant supervision if your methamphetamine possession resulted in a hospitalization for a suicide attempt so that you don't relapse, so that you don't either complete suicide or next time end up running down 15th Street wielding a machete. I mean, usually when you hear about the really crazy occurrences in the news, I'm on the other side of it looking at the person and being like, well, I saw you in the paper yesterday, and I guess the meth isn't working out, huh? And that person's like, no, I don't ever want to do meth again. And then six months later, when they're back here doing meth again, those are some of my mental health addictions concerns. No, and I, I think just the way you explained that is mega helpful. Um, and breaking it down too, I, I want to get your thoughts on the difference between um, those, you know, the, the addictions that are uh, based off of illegal substances, controlled substances versus the ones like alcohol, 
where uh, you can have a little bit every day and it's perfectly legal and fine. Um, what are the differences in those types of addictions that you've seen and that you've experienced? Okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about it from a public health standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the most expensive addiction? What is it? Cigarettes. Cigarettes. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Should have should have seen that one. And so, what do you think cigarettes cost a year for the United States in healthcare costs? Or billion, five hundred billion dollars. Five hundred so billion. It's one sixth the indirect cost of cigarettes. The second most expensive one is alcohol at about three hundred billion. So altogether. Uh, 25% of all healthcare costs in the United States are, direct, are directly and indirectly attributable to alcohol and smoking. So when you say to me, and, and the thing again is, I don't want to sign up for your addiction. I don't want to. I don't drink, by the way, and I don't smoke. Mm-hmm. But I don't want, and it's not any religious thing. I just think that drinking is stupid, too. Um, uh, but um, I don't want to pay for the consequences of your like bad choices. Right. I, I, you have a right to make bad choices, but that's why I do agree with like the high taxation of these items. Like, because it's like you, you, you're entering an actuarial pool of people who, um, are going to cost a ton of money over the course of their life, uh, and, um, and are going to die poorly. Um, and I don't mean poor in terms of money, but I mean the deaths from cirrhosis, deaths from, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and having to drag yourself around your house with a walker with an oxygen tank strapped to the front of it. Mm-hmm. It's not a fun way to go. It's not a fun way to live the last 10 years of your life. Well, then you take into consideration, too, the amount of people who um, look to those things as cures or as temporary fixes. Yeah. And you would be amazed because probably 50% of the people I discharge from WBI, maybe 60%, on the day of discharge, I'm required to have a discussion that I actually wrote the chapter on smoking cessation in the Sanford Wild addiction book. But so I, I definitely am an advocate of smoking cessation, but I have this discussion three or four times a day with people and 75% of the people leaving WBI, even if they've been in the hospital for a week and have no money, they are unwilling to not smoke when they leave. They decline or they say, I say, well, what if I just take an extra? And I go through this whole talk about cigarettes cost you two thousand dollars a year at least. If you're smoking a pack a day, it's gonna be, you know, I mean that's a cruise in the Bahamas for a week with you and your loved one. Uh, you know, it's a lot better to spend two grand than smelling bad and dying of lung cancer. Um, but even then, and they're over the initial cravings, but they're like, No, I really like to smoke. And I'm like, Oh, that's a really bad idea. It's just a, a, a vicious, never-ending cycle there, and we're about running out of time here, and I wanted to get uh, your thoughts specifically about addiction among the youth. You should drug test your kids regularly. Um, that's the first thing that folks might not know, mm-hmm. is that it actually helps children. Um, I was part of an initiative called Test Your Kids a long time ago, and contingency management and rewarding your kids for being clean when you test them. Uh, there's now a saliva test. They don't even have to pee in a cup. If you don't want to do that, oh, the pee in a cup is easier and more reliable. But if I had to say one thing I would advise parents of teenage children to do, and that I have done with my own children, is test them. And one of the greatest things that testing your children does is it gives them an out with their friends around peer pressure. Exactly. Because when a kid says, my parents test me randomly and regularly, and if I get caught, you're going to get caught. 
because they're going to call your parents and they're going to ask them to test you too. And it's going to be bad for all of us. So I'm just not going to do it. Most children are not that excited about getting high the first time. They do it because of peer pressure. Right. They do it because they want to fit in. And they do it because it's a low-risk thing the first time. Here, smoke some weed. Easiest thing in the world to test for. Nicotine's easy to test for, too, if your kid's vaping. You can't smell it anymore. Most teenagers vape, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they believe that vapes are safe, which, of course, we know they're not. So that's number one. And then I guess the thing most of all about addiction, and that's the one, my one sentence that pays, uh, and this is uh, a sentence that I coined, addiction is a disease of self-deception. Okay. All addiction is derived from uh, the ongoing uh, use of a substance that you know is not good for you. You know it because you, you say, I don't want to get caught. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. So you know it has a negative thing. I'm going to quit. I should quit, but it's hard to quit, whatever. But it's all it's all about self-deception, right? I could have one more drink. I mean, like the other thing, people are like, well, I've got a pack of cigarettes at home. I get out of the hospital. I don't want to throw those away. I'd rather increase my risk of lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, think about from a common sense perception, how much you have to be lying to yourself about that. Do you use your seatbelt when you drive? My seatbelt has never saved my life or even prevented an injury. I'm <laughs> years old. Uh-huh. I've never been in a dangerous car accident where my seatbelt helped me at all. You know, then your brain can just mindset. take that leap of logic and then just run with it. Right. But the thing is, like, you you put it on, right? Because it's like, well, I don't want something bad to happen to me, and it's really not that big a deal to put a seatbelt on. But, right? But somehow other people are like, yeah, I can use drugs. And it's just a, a, a scary, terrifying prospect that, that uh, the, the human brain can convince itself of, of those types of things. And uh, this is our last little chunk of time here. So I do wanted to give you the, the opportunity to talk about uh, the services you do provide to, uh, to, to help with addiction at, at WBI. Um, WBI uh, has some IOP services for adolescents in addiction. We provide detoxification services for adults. We provide um, a lot of indirect resources around addiction, but we don't actually, we're not, we don't have inpatient treatment for chronic stuff. Central Climbing Counseling Center is a better resource for that with their residential treatment program. The VOA is a great place for residential treatment. But there are tons of great outpatient uh, options. Wyoming Recovery also has teen and outpatient options. There's lots of different ways you can get help. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can still provide the referrals and the assessments because sometimes you need more than just that anyway. Right. And so that's one of the things that I really want people to get their head around with this is that it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, problem, recovery. That is a, a huge misconception too, especially when people get into uh, rehab of, of some kind. Uh, the the like you said, the recidiv- recidivism, the relapse rate. Uh, people need to know that it's going to be a long process. It's not going to be, hey, I'm fixed. It's one and done. It's it's you got to put. You have to be ready to 
put in that continued effort in addition to yes. folks providing those services like yourselves. Uh, Dr. Martirano, thank you so much uh, for taking the time, as always, to uh, chat with us. We look forward to uh, the next conversation that we have. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to get out to our listeners before we let you get out of here today? Stay new to your pets. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, I like it. We, we, we need uh, we need an ending call sign there, so I think that's perfect. <laughs> well, you have a great rest okay. of your day, and uh, thanks again, as always. We do appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, more coffee time after a quick word from our sponsors.